a survey recently on the question of fun facts to know and tell. They asked people this, how well do you think you know various uh, natural resources in the United States? And they got a 64% positive reaction to that question. Yes, I'm pretty confident. And so here are some of the questions they asked and some of the answers they received. Where are the redwood forests located? 51% knew they're in California. How about the Grand Canyon? 38% could correctly identify it as in Arizona. 20% said Colorado. When it came to the Niagara Falls, 22% said that Niagara Falls are in Iceland. <laughs> Only 32% got that one right. And then uh, one more, 35% uh, correctly said the Shawnee National Forest is in Illinois. 18% said it's in Iceland. Those are more than just indicators about things that are fun to know and to tell. Uh, they point us to the importance of critical things to know, critical things to control our thinking and our living. In, really, they point us to one essential thing, knowing the Lord. Psalm 46 says, Psalm 46 verse 10 says, be still and know that I am God. Do you know God today? That's a critical thing, that you know God. Now, that psalm goes on and talks about the importance of knowing God in a world that is filled with trouble. The writer goes on and he says, there is a river, the streams of which uh, make glad the dwelling place of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that at break of day. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And then the psalmist talks about what desolation God makes in the world. We live in a very troubled environment. The contrast between our world of need and the person of God and his stability is something given to us to encourage us in our faith. We want to be people who know what it means to trust the Lord. We need to be people who are casting our cares on him. And what we see in the passage of Scripture we just read is God protecting and providing for a repentant sinner as he submits to God's direction. So if you have your Bible and can turn to 2 Samuel, we're going to work down through the passage, 2 Samuel chapter 16, beginning with verse 15, down through chapter 17, 
verse 14. How shall we approach this thing? Well, it's really about the conflict between two spiritual advisors. That's the essence of the passage. And we're going to look at these two competing counselors. And after we've done that, we'll uh, look at how the Lord is protecting and advancing his kingdom in the world. And then finally, we'll get, get around to uh, one application for the week that's before you. Well, two competing counselors. Let's look at them. Uh, you'll remember... The last time we heard anything about Absalom was back at the end of chapter 15. Um, he and Hushai enter the city of Jerusalem at the same time. And then the camera breaks away from that and follows David as he flees the city. Now here at chapter 16, verse 14, the cameraman brings our attention back to Absalom and to Hushai. Now, as you remember, Hushai is in a difficult spot. He is known as David's friend. He is also instructed by David to go back into the city of Jerusalem and see if he can be a counselor that will confuse the counsel that Ahithophel, the traitor, will be offering. And so he's walking this very fine line. He comes into, sit, into the city, he sees Absalom, and he says, what does he say? Hmm. Look at uh, the end of verse 16. Long live the king, long live the king, and right away, Absalom is a little nervous. And he says, you're supposed to be the, father, the friend to the king, why are you saying long live the king? And Hushai's response is, No, for whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his will I be. Who shall I serve? I will serve you as I served your father. Now, let's say immediately to ourselves that Hushai is... Uh, He's, he's speaking somewhat with a forked tongue. He's intentionally being confusing. He does hail Absalom as king, but he doesn't say, hail King Absalom. He says, hail king. Because his real loyalty is to David. <clears throat> That's enough, though, to pacify Absalom for the moment, and he turns his attention to Ahithophel, the other counselor, and he says, now that we're back in Jerusalem, what shall we do? And Ahithophel says, here's what you do, David. Uh, here's what you do, Absalom. You need to make sure that everybody in Israel understands that a final breach has taken place between you and your father. You go back to chapter 15, and you will see that... Um, David had, uh, really, well, chapter 15, we can go back a 
a long way in David's experience. David did not have a very good track record when it came to uh, his marriages. How many wives did he have? And on top of them, how many concubines? So as he leaves the city, 10 of these concubines, mistresses in other words, are left there uh, to take care of things. Now Ahithophel says, Absalom, you go in to these concubines in front of all Israel, and that will be a definite sign that you and your father are on opposite ends of the spectrum. Sadly, sadly, they pitch a tent, verse 22, Absalom goes in before all of Israel, and now the word is out. Someone has said, well, Absalom going into these ten concubines up on top of the palace roof where David had viewed uh, Bathsheba before he committed adultery with her, for him to do that was like a uh, group of rebels taking over a country and in so doing also capturing and using the radio station. They can send out their own message, and they do it quickly, and that's what happens here. The word is out now like wildfire. Absalom and David are at odds. If there was any question, now is the time for you to side with Absalom. <clears throat> we think to ourselves, what kind of wicked counsel did Ahithophel give to Absalom? And what does that say to us about Absalom? It raises a question, though, just on the side. It's not the point of this passage, but it's, worth one, it's one worth raising. Where do you go for counsel? Who do you listen to? It is the height of folly to pay attention to any would-be leader who promotes godlessness, who promotes immorality. But that's Ahithophel's first line of advice. He has part two at the beginning of chapter 17. Look at verses one through four. He says, now, this is what we need to do, Absalom. Let's collect... 12,000 troops, perhaps 1,000 from each of the tribes of Israel, and quickly pursue David, we'll be able to overcome him. He's probably tired, weary from uh, fleeing the city. We'll catch him. We'll take care of him. We'll put him to death, and we won't have to divide the country in some kind of civil war. Again, just think about that a little bit. Ahithophel not only encourages Absalom to be publicly immoral, he now encourages him to kill his father. It's unbelievable. And it's particularly uh, revealing because back in chapter 15, as Absalom is hatching this plan to take over the kingdom, he says to his father, um, 
I have made a promise. I would like to go to Hebron to pay my vows, my respects to the Lord. Uh, Would you please give me permission to go do that? And David says to him, go in peace. It reminds us, Proverbs tells us, even a child is known by his doings. It's not difficult to figure out what's going on in a person's heart. All you have to do is look at past behavior, right? You check out past behavior, it's a pretty good predictor of what's coming down the pike next. Absalom likes the plan, verse 4. But then he pauses. He says, well, let's consult Hushai. And that's laid out for us in in verses 5 through 14. Now, as I said before, um, it's a difficult spot in which Hushai finds himself. He's really on a razor's edge. He needs to speak in such a way that he can confound the wisdom that Ahithophel has already suggested, uh, a way that protects David, but he needs to do it in a way that um, doesn't tip his hand, that he's really a mole here in Jerusalem. So what's he do? Well, verse 7, he says, you know, this time the uh, advice that that Ahithophel has given, uh, this time it isn't good. He may have given other good advice, but not this time. And then he calls Absalom's attention to David, his father. And he says, now you know about your father. You know how he behaves. He won't be with the other soldiers right now. He's probably hidden in some little cave somewhere, and it will be very difficult to find him. What I suggest we do is we call for a large army from Dan to Beersheba, all over Israel. Let's bring the troops. And Absalom, you can lead them. And then you'll be able to find David wherever he is because you'll have lots of troops around you and you'll be done with him. What's the key point to which Hushai is appealing? He is appealing to something that we've seen before in the life of Absalom, his pride. Remember? When Absalom decided that he was going to embark on this plan to take over the kingdom, he gets a chariot and 50 runners to go before him. And they take off and then they announce, oh, Absalom is coming. Well, Hushai plays on his pride. You'll be able to lead this vast army of all Israelites and they will be able with you to now finally bring victory. Now, in effect, though, it will take more time. And that's exactly what Hushai wants to do. He wants to buy time for David. Let's just pause again here. You know, the Bible says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride says that when you flatter somebody, you're really spreading a net for his feet. I wonder, 
What kind of reaction do you have when somebody flatters you? You're usually sucked in by that. It's a warning. It's not the point of this passage, but it's just a warning along the way. Be careful how you respond to praise. Well, we know what happens. Verses 12 and or verses 15 and following, Hushai's plan works. Absalom and all the men of Israel, verse 14, say, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. And so Hushai sends Zadok and Abiathar off to tell David, to warn him. He does. David escapes. And then we come to these tragic words in verse 23. Ahithophel is a true statesman, apparently. He realizes that his counsel has been rejected. He also realizes that uh, this plan probably won't, uh, won't be successful, and he will be found out to be a traitor. So he goes home, puts his things in order, and hangs himself. That gives us a little overview of these competing councils and how the Lord works things out so that David is saved, even as he leaves Israel under a very sad set of circumstances. But now what we want to do is ask ourselves the question, how is this related to the advance of God's kingdom, which is really what this passage teaches us? You go back to verse 23. We read that the counsel of Ahithophel was as if one consulted the word of God, and both David and Absalom esteemed his counsel to be such. It was wise counsel, generally speaking. And now just go down and look at the end of verse 14. What do we read there? Verse 14, Absalom says, the counsel of Hushai is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. And now here are the key words. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. What picture of God does that give you? The weak, not able to really get it together, frantic in what's happening in our world? Not at all. The Lord, and, and the word in, in this verse is the I am that I am, the unchanging one. The Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord, the unchanging one, might bring harm upon Absalom. Competing counselors, and here what's so clear is God is advancing and protecting his kingdom through all of these counsels that take place and the decisions that are made. What do we do with that? How is this of some value to us? 
Well, this is recorded history. And what happened certainly made a difference in David's life. The Lord is protecting him, even as he's humbling him. God is keeping his promise. He said, David, uh, I'm going to have your descendants sit upon your throne. I'm going to direct history. This certainly made a difference to the nation of Israel. The nation is preserved and protected even through these circumstances that seem almost unbelievable. And certainly, as readers of this history, 100, 200, 500, 1,000 years later, read these verses, they would look back on that and say, oh, yeah, we see how God has been keeping his word through difficulties and through sin, through terrible, terrible suffering. But what the Lord is doing here is he is doing something for us as well. In the same way that these words gave encouragement and assurance to those that would follow and read these texts, so they're here for us to encourage us that God's kingdom is advancing. He's at work even in the most distressing events of your life. We see that, of course, most graphically fulfilled in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus, who, though he was God, did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in human likeness, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. And he comes to advance God's kingdom in this world by his faithful submission to the Lord's agenda. So he says, not my will, but yours be done as he faces the cross. Now, this passage also then, through Christ, points to generations of faithful believers. And, and it calls faithful believers to be faithful to the Lord in ways that Absalom was not and Ahithophel was not. It's a study in contrast. Here are people that side with Absalom, a terrible rebel. The Lord is in effect saying through his bad example, don't you be like him. You submit to the authority structures that God has placed in our world. Instead of trying to work out of your own resources and trust yourself to the Lord to provide for your needs and to give you direction so that you can serve his agenda, not your own. And that's because the Lord cares for you and calls you to cast all your cares on him. The Journal of Epidemiology and Public Health 
published an article entitled Trust and All-Cause Mortality. And the researchers uh, followed 25,000 people from uh, 1978, I think it was, until the year 2000. They followed 25,000 people to find out uh, how much stress bothered them. And guess what they concluded? The more stress you're under, the more your mortality is likely to be affected. You'll live shorter life if you're under a lot of stress. And then they went the next step and they said, now where do people experience stress? Well, in the communities in which they live. So if you're in a community where people aren't trusting of one another and you're caught up in that, expect that to negatively affect your life too. Just, I have the statistics here that, yeah, here's what they found. In the 80s, 43% of people lived in trusting communities. By the year 2000, that had dropped to 34% living in trusting communities. I wonder what they would say about our COVID experience. How has that nurtured our trust? And um, this trust business affects both genders, and it doesn't really change whether you're better educated or not so educated, whether you're rich and famous or not so rich and famous. Cuts across the board. More trust, longer life. Less trust, shorter life. And you see, there's only one who is ultimately worthy of your trust. And that is the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> and we demonstrate our trust in Christ by choosing to serve him. Does that make sense? I was thinking about it as we received the offering. We take part of what we've earned and we give it away. Why? We're saying, I'm trusting the Lord is going to take care of me and that he can better order my life with the remainder from what I give than if I try to keep the whole thing for myself. And we do the same thing then when it comes to the way we spend our time. We say, I believe the Lord can make a better use of my life if I give him one day and work the other six. And you see, there is this one, uh, the Lord Jesus, who is worthy of your trust, and he calls you to trust him in this next week. So let's just ponder this a little bit. Where, are you, where have you been trying to run your own show? And what would it look like for you to say, okay, Lord, from this point on, I'm going to give myself to you. Psalm 34 is helpful. It says, trust in the Lord and do good. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you 
the desires of your heart. And then Psalm 118 follows up with this admonition. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. What's the best way to live? To fight back against the authority structures the Lord has placed in our lives? To be distrustful? No. No. We're called to be people who serve Christ as we submit to those that he has placed in authority over us. Absalom and Ahithophel think the best way forward is to kill the king. And what do Christians think? The best way forward is to gladly honor the king. It's a call to serve him by living under his rule, living under his reign. Lord, bless your word to us, we pray. We thank you for it. Change us to be people who, instead of being self-centered and preoccupied with our own agendas, are increasingly willing to say, not I, but Christ. May he increase and may I decrease. And we ask that you move us in that direction by your Holy Spirit, through your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>